0: Okay, we're going to get started. I know you probably didn't get through all the questions, but thanks for working on the ones that you did. I think this table wins the award. Looks like you got through them all. Almost. You guys did? All right. And you did? Yay! Hey, thanks for being here tonight. Some of us had to come in our boats. We almost couldn't get out of our ro- off our road and beyond our little river there, and it was kind of scary, so thanks for just making a trek out here, and for our first Women in the Word of the Summer, we're so glad you're here, and you're going to make new friends and get to know God a little deeper, and uh, we're just blessed to get to be a part of it. I'm Lynn Kitchens, and I'm glad we get to make God's Word a priority this summer. Okay, so we've got the title, Eavesdropping on Conversations with God. And so I started thinking about, when are some times I have eavesdrop on people? (laughs) And then I thought, sometimes you don't really mean to. Like one time when I graduated from college, Ted said, my husband, we're going to go to Europe. We're going to do a trip to celebrate and we're going to go to Europe. And I remember sitting on an airplane and the two stewardess were working on the bin above me. And they start talking to each other. And I couldn't help but eavesdrop. And the one says, hey, what's that sound? <laughs> and the other stewardess kind of looking around nervously going, what? What sound? It, you know, like, be quiet. And she said, that sound, ring, ring, ring." I've never heard that sound before. And I'm like listening. <laughs> and she goes, the other stewardess, I, I just don't know what you're talking about. And she goes, that sound, rah, rah, something's wrong. And the other stewardess gets quiet. And then the pilot comes on and says, okay, welcome. We're ready to take off. We're heading to the runway. We're going to take off. And I look up and the first stewardess is going, That she walks away, and I thought, that was a conversation I wish I hadn't heard. There was nothing beneficial about eavesdropping on that conversation. Um, Fortunately, we made it, as you can tell. (laughs) We are going to be eavesdropping on conversations with God and his servants. They will be beneficial to us. We really believe they're going to bless your prayer life. They're going to bless your walk with God. And we're going to start tonight by eavesdropping on some conversations between Moses and God. And we're going to learn something amazing at the top of your outline. We cannot change the purposes and the plans of God. But our prayers can affect the way God accomplishes his purposes and plans. That is an amazing reality. Even though we're imperfect, even though we're fallen, we can join God uh, in his will and the things he's accomplishing in this world. And in that sense, we are prayer partners with God himself. Incredible. He uses our prayers combined with his own determination to make his will come to pass. And we can see that from the prayers of Moses. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as with a friend. Now, we know he wasn't really seeing God's face, but that means with openness, with truth, with friendship. That's how they talk to each other. So when we lean in to hear some things God's saying to Moses, and then we lean back and we hear some things that Moses is saying to God, we are hearing this wonderful example of what it looks like when intercessory faithful prayers are connected to the purposes of the Lord and both elements come together to bring about the will of God. What a wonderful thing. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself what I was thinking. Yeah, this is Moses. You know, Moses, he's kind of special. He was kind of mighty. Moses' prayer experiences are way beyond the possibility of my prayer experiences with God. And I want to say, isn't James 5.16 written for us? On your verse sheet, the prayers of a righteous man accomplish much. Wasn't that written for the church? And then we also have to remember this. Moses led Israel. Was he real excited about that? Was that his choice? He had a calling from God. You have a calling from God. You serve the same God that Moses did. God does not change we can still have those kind of prayers with God. We can learn how to pray like Moses, so we are prayer partners with God's plans. And as Moses interceded for the people he loved, we can intercede for the people we love and bless them. Our God is not inflexible. He responds to individual needs and desires. Yay. Look at First John 5. This is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Okay, so Moses has two loves, a love for his people and a love for his God. Moses' people were God's people and they were enslaved in the land of Egypt. God's people called God Yahweh, which is built on the word I am. And God's people were the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They were the people of the promise, God's covenant people. He made a covenant with them to bring them land. Seed and blessing. And Abraham's descendants were to grow into a mighty nation that followed the one true God. They were to be a light in a world that was lost by pursuing gods that weren't gods at all. That were just pursuing false gods. And ultimately, it was God's plan to redeem all of mankind through his nation Israel. The seed of Abraham Jesus would bring about our salvation and bear our sins. Now the children of God, the people of Israel, first came to Egypt through Jacob and his 12 sons, which became the 12 tribes of Israel. They came there to escape a famine. But they were there 400 years And after 400 years, the descendants of Jacob and his 12 sons had become enslaved and were mistreated in Egypt. And their cries were loud. And God heard their cries. And God said he would deliver them like he promised them that he would. And so he chose Moses, a Jew and an Egyptian, to take his people from their trials to lead them to the land of promise the land of Canaan, and there they could serve God. They would be greatly blessed. They would be a blessing to the world and to each other. And when it was time for them to be delivered, never could they ever have imagined in all their lives how God was going to do it. Never could they imagine the might and the power of their God. They were overwhelmed as those plagues that God sent on Egypt, that helped bring them to freedom. They watched in awe as God split open the Red Sea. They walked and ran, probably if it was me, I'd be running, through the muddy sea to get to the other side. And then they turned around and saw the sea cover up the Egyptians that were pursuing them. Later they saw manna that would fall from heaven as a provision from God in the wilderness So at their deliverance from Egypt, they danced, they sang, they worshipped their God, Yahweh, the God of their forefathers, the God who said, You're going to become a great nation, I'm going to bless you, the God who chose them and who loved them with a covenant love. And so they sang this. Look at Exodus 15 on your verse sheet. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you've redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. But then... Moses was meeting with God on Mount Sinai. We've all heard of Mount Sinai. He's receiving the commandments, and God's people grew restless. He had been gone 40 days, and they were restless. You know, I was thinking, we are so used to instant gratification today. Don't you know we would have all already swam back to Egypt in those 40 days? (laughs) Maybe stay around two, maybe three days, and then we'd be out of there. I was even thinking about my parents. I took them to the doctor last year, and we were waiting 15 minutes past the doctor's appointment, and I look, and my mom has stood up. And she's like, I'm out of here. I said, Mom, sit down. This is what you do in a doctor's office. You wait. That's why it's called a waiting room. Israel was in a waiting room, and after their miraculous deliverance from Egypt, they are restless, and God's people rebelled. Look at chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, they gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold in in the ears of your wives, your sons and daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Pretty hard for us to understand when we just read and heard about the miracles that happened to them. So... Moses is up on the mountain and God's people were seeking false gods of nations around them. They were not just requesting gods. They were requesting gods who would take them on this journey, who would lead and guide them. In only three months, they'd forgotten that every hour of their wilderness journey had been covered by the divine care and the goodness of God. Food from heaven water gushing from a rock, the presence of God as a, sh- as a cloud during the day which would provide shade that they could follow, and a pillar of fire by night to be their guide and their protection, to show his light and his glory. When we read this, we realize they only remember Moses leading them out of the land, and they don't know what's ever happened to him. Their song, God, you have guided us by your strength, has died on their lips. And now they're dancing and worshiping and committing immorality before a golden calf. This was an ominous worship symbol of the Egyptians and the Canaanites that didn't have a clue who the one real God was like they did. These are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. This is a very sad meaning right here. The worship of the one true God, the Israelites were trying to blend with the symbols of Baal and probably other fertility gods. They were attempting to worship their God, Yahweh, by means of a way he had declared unacceptable, which made it even a stronger destructive sin, because they had just received the Ten Commandments. What's commandment number two? Everybody knows that. Look on your verse sheet. Exodus 24. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So they were also transferring the center of their authority, of their faith in Yahweh from Moses and the laws that God gave Moses to bring them to a golden calf without any laws beyond itself. Look what Psalm 106 says. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And now we know why Moses needed to pray. He's going to have a prayer direction, four things. He's going to want to pray to secure that God would not destroy these people. He's going to want to secure that their sin, which seems unpardonable, will be forgiven. He's going to want to secure that God's presence won't leave them. And he's going to want to be sure that God will renew the covenant that has bound him to these rebellious people. But for now, Moses doesn't know this has happened. He's on the mountain with God. All at once, his wonderful mountaintop experience takes a horrible turn. Look at verse 7 in chapter 32. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Okay, right off the bat we notice something here about what God has to say about his people. He calls them your people. Your people, Moses, not that I took out of Egypt, you took out of Egypt. God is so angry he doesn't even want to claim the people as his own and he doesn't want to claim the deliverance he brought in their lives. He says they're corrupted. This means go to ruin. It's a term um, about turning away from revealed truth. It's a term that God used to describe all the corruption in the days of Noah. This is how he sees these people they're disobedient, they've made a false God, and they're stiff necked. How many of you have ever ridden a stiff necked horse? It's hard to get it to do anything you want it to do. That's what God means. It's also a term that means perversity, being stiff-necked. So now they dance, but they are no longer dancing for Yahweh based on his term. They're seeking their own gods based on their own terms. And to eat and to drink and to rise up and play involved sexual um, inappropriate behavior. It meant the desertion of all the responsibility that it meant to follow God. All the things that tied them to God. And while God is telling this to Moses, what in the world do you think was happening to his heart? I just think it was like somebody punched him in the stomach. I think his heart felt the horror of their situation. He's not down there. He's on Mount Sinai with a holy God surrounded by the burning holiness of God Almighty who's like a devouring fire and he knows what these sins could mean in the lives of these people that he loves. He describes his time with God. You can see it before this happened. Exodus 24 on your verse sheet. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. The cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain and was there 40 days and 40 nights. I think the horror that was in Moses' heart became a reality when he heard the next words from God. Look at verse 10 in chapter 32. God says, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Wow. Wow. The devouring fire, God himself will consume the people that are dancing at the bottom of Mount Sinai, the children of Israel, and he says, I'll make a great nation out of you, Moses, and your descendants. So basically Moses would become like a new Abraham and build a new nation. What a test for Moses. Right then and there, it gave him the opportunity to choose between his own glory, his own honor, or the well-being of the rebellious people that God had put under his care. And I love it that we don't get any impression in God's word, but that Moses had integrity. He instantly says to God, no, no, God, no. He cares about the people of Israel more than his own glory, more than what God just said to him. And so the pleading of a humble soul begins. Moses interceding for the children of Israel. Look at verse 11. to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. Okay, do you notice what Moses does when he begins his? he, He reminds God, these children of Israel, they're your children. He says, your, your, not mine. He reversed God's reference there. And it's like he's saying, God, you have done so much for this nation for all these years. And you just displayed your might and your power for them. Don't contradict your steadfast love for them with this kind of action." These people were gods, not only by creation, but by redemption. And then Moses implores God to consider his testimony to the Egyptians. What would the Egyptians say if all of Israel was annihilated? I know what they would say. Last night, my husband and I took our little granddaughter, Alice, to the park. We were pushing her on a swing. She just turned two about a week ago. And all of a sudden, she, Ted's pushing her higher and higher. And all of a sudden, she says, yee We didn't even know she knew that word. We just stared at her. Hey, that's what the Egyptians would do when they heard this news. yee That's what we thought. Good. I'm glad that happened to them. It would vindicate the Egyptians and cause them to mock the one true God. You know, once they'd made an accusation against God and said, God just wants to take them out in the desert so he can kill them. He would th- they would think they were right if this is what God did. Moses cares about God's reputation. And then Moses implores God to consider his promise to the patriarchs. To destroy the people of Israel at this stage would be to end the possibility of the covenant being fulfilled, as God promised the patriarchs for the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to be innumerable and to live in a land of goodness and promise. So we think, wow, Moses, these are bold prayers. But they're coming from the mouth of Yahweh's friend. And they move the heart of God. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. He relents from his threatened course of judgment. And the word relent means relief from an undesirable course of action. This word's used 30 times in reference to God, and every time he changes his intention in accord with his righteous purposes, and he takes a new action that coincides with his purposes. So after Moses' prayer, God embarked on another course of action, which we're going to see. Isn't that amazing? That is the power of prayer. Moses went down the mountain. He's carrying the two stone tablets. The Bible tells us on it were written laws written by the hand of God. God wrote them. And as Moses is walking down with them and he nears the camp, he begins to see the camp. He begins to hear singing. And that seems strange to him. Then he gets closer in the dark and he sees the firelight and in the firelight he sees God's people dancing loosely around a false idol in the form of a calf and in anger Moses throws those stone tablets with God's writing down on the ground and the people see them break in many pieces a symbol of broken communion between God and the children of Israel. Then Moses destroyed the calf, disciplined God's people. 3,000 people's lives were lost that moment. They were judged and killed by the Levites under Moses' command. These would be leaders that were pursuing idolatry. But Moses is not done praying. You know, it was one thing to have God tell him this story on top of the mountain, but can you imagine what Moses was feeling when he saw this for himself? When he saw the sin and how great it was, I think his heart burned and he thought, I've got to make sure God will forgive them. I've got to go to God and do that. Can this people journey to the promised land without the favor of God with them? I've got to seek forgiveness. I want covenant blessings restored to these people. And so Moses turns around. That path is getting kind of worn now up Mount Sinai. And up he starts again. Back to meet with his friend. To talk about these people. He seeks forgiveness from God. Look at verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin and now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They've made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. Okay, first thing Moses does when he's in God's presence on Mount Sinai is confess the sins of the Israelites. He doesn't make excuses for them. He doesn't say, that was hard. They were restless. I've been gone 40 days. He calls a sin a sin. Sin is seeing things as God sees it. It's rebellion against God. Now what Moses says next, there are different schools of thought about the next words, but many theologians interpret Moses' words here as one of the most passionate pleas recorded in history that he's willing to die so that the nation of israel might live you know the day before he might have been tossing back and forth in his tent wondering if he could prevail with god to accept him as a sacrifice on behalf of this guilty people he's willing to have his own name removed from the book of life That they might live. Now when we hear Book of Life, we think about the book of the names of the people that are saved and know the Lord. That's not what this book is. This book is about physical life. So Moses is saying he's willing to suffer an untimely death for these people. I thought about the Apostle Paul. He had that same kind of love for others As an intercessor himself, always praying for the church. Look at Romans 9. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You know who else this made me think of? Esther. Okay, Esther was the Jewish queen. She was trying to save her people, but she had to go talk to the king about it. You didn't go talk to the king unless you got ordered to come see the king by the king. You usually died if you just showed up yourself. She knew that. But she went to the king anyway, and her words were, if I die, I die. She was also an intercessor, caring about her people. After Moses' prayer, God explained his justice to Moses. We just read that. He promised, though, a future for Israel, which would have encouraged the heart of Moses. And God explained to him, each man is responsible for his own sin. And you, Moses, who yourself are a sinner, cannot possibly die for the sins of this nation. Only someone who is sinless can do that. And that person would come from the very nation Israel, the man, the God, Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, God warned Moses that he must judge the people that sin; They would be blotted out of the book of life, meaning they would lose their lives. And their judgment would involve their death. You know, Psalm 93 tells us that God's statutes stand firm and his holiness adorns his house. And so a holy judge must act justly toward those who rebel against his holiness and his statutes. So the Lord sent a plague on those who had moved their allegiance from the one true God to a God made out of gold earrings that came out of somebody's ears I love it that God encouraged Moses by presenting the future he did not reject them as a nation but then he told them an angel will go before you on your journey to the land of promise so as Moses descends back down to his people they hear from God again and we see another result of Moses's prayer God reaffirms the covenant of the land to the people as Moses comes down this time. Look at chapter 33. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. He reconfirms that covenant there. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and as Ted says, Mosquito Bites. <laughs> go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest, you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. The people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. So removing their jewelry and their outer adornment, which men and women had lots of, Is a sign of mourning before God. The promised land is reaffirmed, but not the presence of God. They wanted God. They needed God. They wanted to follow God in the desert, not a representative of Him. So Moses is not done praying. Verse 12 Moses wants to intercede again. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you'll send with me. Yet you've said, I know you by name, and you found favor in my sight. Well, now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, well, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. He kind of needs to be convinced of this. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. You know, Moses has great confidence in approaching God with his supplications because he has a close relationship with God. He has kept that close relationship. So he seeks assurance from God that first God would show him his ways. He wanted more revelation about God's intentions with his people. And he wanted more revelation about the ways of God so he could lead well following the intentions of God. And then Moses seeks that God would confirm his presence on their journey. Do you notice he asked them twice? So he says, you know, you told me to lead your people, but how can I do that without you? How can I, God? And then he says, I'd rather not go to the promised land at all if you're not going to be with us. Here's Moses' position here. I love what he says. God's presence is what set Israel apart from every other nation on the face of the earth. But God's presence is what set Moses apart from every other leader on the face of the earth. Come with us, God. Come with us. His prayer is humble. It's about obedience. It's about integrity. And as God as friends listens to it, he is pleased with him. And God again changes his course of action due to the prayer, the righteous prayer of Moses that combines with God's will. I will go with you. And I will give you rest. And that means rest from your fears. Rest from your turmoil. I will do the very thing that you have spoken. I love this next part because it's almost like Moses thinking, this is going well. Show me your glory. Had anybody ever said that to God before? An amazing thing. Look at verse 18. Moses said, "Please show me your glory." And God said, "I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before my name, before you, my name the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy." but you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live and the Lord said behold there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock and while my glory passes by I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back but my face you shall not see I think part of what is going on here is Moses now wants personal confirmation from God, that he is his. He wants a deeper, unveiled view of the God who was his Savior and his friend. And God said yes. And God says yes to us when we ask him those same kind of bold prayers. Yes, when our prayers show that we just desire to know him more. James 4, 8 tells us, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Now, wouldn't that be great to be near the cleft of that rock that night? I just think we can't really in any way (laughs) figure out what that was like. What was that moment like? We don't know. As Moses is hiding behind the cleft of a rock, God's covering him with his hand. God's goodness passes by. And then God takes his hand away and Moses gets to see the back of God, the glory of God. We can't understand that totally, but here's what we can know. God loves it when we want to seek him. God loves it if we would pray, show me your glory. Yes, he would do that. He wants to display himself in ways that we can never comprehend. We get to stand on the rock of Jesus Christ, our Savior, and we can call out to see his glory each and every day. And when we do that, he's going to be clearer and truer a little more the more we pray. Psalm 91 tells us this. Because he holds fast to me in love, this is God speaking, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. So after Moses' prayer in these verses, God agrees to bless Israel, and he surely blesses Moses abundantly. There's lots of lessons for us to look at in this chapter, but I just pulled out a few of them. Hopefully we've already talked about some of them. If we want to pray like Moses, first of all, we have to care about others. And you're thinking, of course, you wouldn't be praying for them. But you know what I thought about? We sure like to talk about people's sins and needs and suffering to other people. That's a lot more fun. If we're going to be like Moses, we've got to go to God with those things. Talk about people's sufferings and sins and needs and talk with God about it. We have to ask ourselves, do I care enough about these people to pray for God to embark on another course of action in their life? We get to do that. Our prayers can make a difference on their journey to the promised land. Do we hate sin enough? If we don't hate sin, if we don't see sin as God sees it, we probably won't be praying for people either. If we rationalize it in the people we love, if we excuse it, if we tolerate it, we might be closing our eyes to the very reality that sin is destructive. Sin enslaves people, like when Israel was in Egypt. We have to hate sin for what it is. We need to present it before God like Moses did, not making any excuses for it, not calling it something it isn't, calling it what it is, rebellion against God. When we do that, we can pray for God's compassion, forgiveness in the lives of those people in our lives. And then do we know God's promises? It's a fact. We won't pray very well if we don't know God very well. When we pray and we know him and we understand his promises and his word, there is power behind our prayers. Did you notice how much Moses quoted God? We get to do that. Gosh, we've got a whole lot more than Moses had as far as what God's word says. When we Hold God to his word. I think these are prayers that find favor in God's heart. And then we have to humbly seek God's face like Moses did. Isn't that a discipline? It's just such a discipline. It's like climbing Mount Sinai every single day. But we've got to turn around like Moses did, find that path, and start going back up to talk to to God and seek His face. It takes planning. It takes time. It takes determination. It's a discipline to learn how to open up our heart to Him, speak to Him as a person speaks to his friend, so that when we say to God, Show me your glory, He says, Yes, yes, I will. Because guess what? You're my prayer partner. Yes, I will. You know, one of the neatest things is, we don't go into chapter 34, but after these many sins of God's people and the many prayers of Moses, we'll see that God once again speaks amazing promises to his children. And I think his words are some of the same words he would like to say to us about becoming his prayer partner, what he would like to do for us when we seek his face. Look at Exodus 34.10. And he said, Behold, I'm making a covenant before all your people. I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord. Read this last line with me. For it is an awesome thing. Let's start again. Everybody read it out loud. For it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. It is an awesome thing he will do when we pray for others like Moses prayed for Israel. Praise God. Let me pray. Lord, we love you. You are good. You are gracious. And you desire that kind of a relationship with us that Moses had with you. Remind us of that. Equip us for that. Bless us as we climb the mountain to spend time with you seeking your face. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.